0: of the mission. My name is Daniel James, broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands. And by now we should all know that uh, Radio City Docklands is on the home of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, if you're listening to this, it means that I've been murdered. No, sorry, wrong line. If you're listening to this, it means uh, you've decided triple R over the Federal Treasurer. So um, I, I thank you. Um, speaking of uh, Federal Parliament, uh, today was an historic day as Gunai Gundijamara woman and friend of the show, Lydia Thorpe, spent her first day in the Senate. She's now officially a Senator for the state of Victoria. She's uh, bound to shake things up as she starts her work as a Green Senator, no doubt. And it's a proud day for her, it's a proud day for her family, it's a proud day for Mob. And hopefully her contribution will make the Senate, in particular, a more functional place. And she's already shaking things up uh, and having an impact on uh, Greens' policy. Until recently, the Greens had supported the Uluru Statement. But now, after an interview on the ABC uh, yesterday, Greens leader, Ann Bant, seems to have moved away from that position and adopted Lydia's position of treaty first before any voice to Parliament. And we've spoken about her position on that in the past. If you just go to rr.org.au and search for Lydia, if you want, and hear our latest conversation, that's where she talks about it a little bit. And I want to try a summation of her position. So I'll read out her position as tweeted by her uh, a couple of days ago. And she wrote, I say no to constitutional recognition. Grassroots mob have said time and time again, we don't want to go to into the colonizers' law book. We have our own the oldest one on this planet. So, um, Green's letter, Adam Bant, was pressed on the ABC about this yesterday. And it would speak, uh, would seem now that this is actually the, the Green's position. Uh, so, it sparked a bit of a Twitter storm last night with proponents of the Uluru Statement coming out very strongly against the Green's new policy position. And one of the proponents uh, of that position, of the... Uh, pro Uluru Statement Positions is Eddie Sinot and he will be having a yarn with me and with you shortly. So I think it's important that programs like this one, The Mission, try and speak to a diverse range of voices um, and as many voices as possible across the Aboriginal community. We don't all sing from the same hymn sheet. There are a range of views on a number of issues that sometimes leads to disagreement. And you know what? That's okay. And uh, in the second half of the show, we'll be speaking with uh, Corey Tutt, CEO and founder of Deadly Science, Young Australian of the Year, New South Wales 2020. And he's just been nominated for a Eureka Award, which is completely justified because Corey is completely deadly. So uh, that's the show. While I'm here, I want to um, also acknowledge Yorta Yorta woman, uh, Sheena Watt, who will replace Judy Makarkos the Victorian uh, Legislative Council, I always struggle with that word, for the Northern Metropolitan seat. So I look forward to tracking her career and um, hopefully one day we'll get on the show and um, have a yarn to her. We must always celebrate, no matter which political party they come from, we must always celebrate having Indigenous voices and Indigenous representatives in our parliaments across Australia. So I applaud Sheena Watt and I applaud ALP for um, uh, nominating her to replace Jenny. Now, before we head into the first tune, I would like to thank everyone that supported this station during Radiothon. What you showed, that, what you showed is that this is more than a station, it's a community, a community filled with love, passion and respect its love heart is the shape of a radio antenna. So, thank you for listening and allowing the stories we cover here on the mission to be heard.
1: Independently yours, Triple R.
0: 102.7. Uh, now, to my uh, first guest tonight. Uh, as I mentioned at the opening uh, of the show, the Greens seem to have changed their position on the Uluru Statement from the Heart. This means it just got a whole lot more difficult for the statement, the Makarata Commission and the voice to Parliament to eventually be shrined if this is actually turns out to be their position. It sparked an absolute Twitter storm from several several prominent prominent um, Indigenous lawyers and academics last night that came out against the new position. And one of them was Annie uh, Sinot, who was an Indigenous academic, lawyer and researcher at Griffith University. But more importantly, he is a new dad to a young fellow called Arthur. Eddie, welcome back to Triple R and welcome to the mission. Hey, thanks, brother. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, just before we get into the constitutional stuff, um, <laughs> how is the young fella?
1: Yeah, he's good. He's um, he's eating a lot more. So, he's seven weeks early on the 7th of August. So, we yep. spent um, about a month and a half in the um, intensive care, the enable unit and special care unit. Um, but he's, um, you know, they do an amazing job at something. Um, I've said to a lot of people, um, you know, I spend a lot of time as a professional critiquing the Australian government, the country we live in, but um, yeah, going through an experience like that and having access to a public healthcare system, which, you know, isn't universally accessible in the same way across the country either, but um, makes you appreciate, um, you know, just how well he was looked after. And I think yeah, you know, he's probably taken it a lot better than what Mum and I have. Yeah, so sure, old, sure. We're we're slowly recovering now that we're all um, all at home, and he's yeah, going from strength to strength. So it's um, that's great. It's been, it's been a hell of a year.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine 2020 um, by itself is something else, but um, having to to deal with a, a newborn and a, and a, and a it would be um, something else as well. Yeah. So, um, you know, good health to 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 all, to all three of you. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, now, you listened into uh, Radio National Drive with uh, Patricia Cavallis last night, in which Annam Bant was quizzed about the Uluru statement and the Greens' position on it. And um, I'm going to read out the first tweet you sent out in, um, <laughs> in, a, in a number of tweets. So um, yeah. this is now me reading one of Eddie's tweets. You, you, you wrote, This is disgusting based on what? The Uluru Statement is a deliberative, legitimate process, but that produced the sequence reforms of voice, treaty and truth. One Indigenous member of the Greens does not change that. So... Uh, you're clearly furious and, and puzzled by the the statements from Ban. I think Lydia has been on the record for some time now as being opposed to the voice in the process, but and now does seem to be uh, a Greens policy position. Uh, where does this leave the the statement from the heart?
1: Ironically, I, I think it leaves us, you know, in a, uh, a strengthened position because more than anything else, I think this decision just highlights how important a First Nations voice to Parliament in the Constitution is. Um, you know, Senator Thorpe, and, you know, I to congratulations to her, um, regardless of our political differences and our differences on the that It is fantastic to see another Aboriginal person um, in, our, in our national parliament. Yep. Um, but, you know, there are serious questions that need to be answered and considered about this, and I think yeah. her having um recognised and taken that step to to enter into parliament, into the national parliament following her time in the Victorian Parliament, um, despite her own issues with the Australian state and sovereignty and treaty and everything else, recognises the fact that, you know, that is where we are able to implement structural reform. We need a voice. We need our voices heard in these institutions. But you know, I think more important than ever, the, this backflip from the Greens after you know, what I should say is carefully considered support from the Greens for years, ever since the order statement was um, you know, implemented, Senator Seawett, who previously had the portfolio, um, took her time to understand the reforms, understand the expert advice, understand, like you mentioned in my tweet, about the you know deliberative process that produced this, that was First Nations led. Um, and so I just think it you know highlights more than ever just how important I think Roy R C, who's co-chair of the Uluru Dialogue Leadership Group, has said it, and I think it was one of the tweets I put in there as well. Mm. Um, We don't want a green voice, a blue voice, or a red voice. We want a black voice. It just highlights for me more than ever the importance of having that institutional mechanism to be able to achieve structural reform.
0: So you picked up on um, two issues that that you and and people like uh, Megan Davis, um, the the very eminent uh, Indigenous uh, lawyer, human rights lawyer, and um, some others had with it, that. and and that, that's two things: the way the the, the policy um, position was mm-hmm. arrived at, and two yeah. was the second the second point was the the sequencing that is being um, yeah. promoted by Lydia. Let's, let's talk about the way the position was was got to in the first place. What well, what are your issues with with that?
1: Yeah, well, I guess a couple of things, and one thing that really stands up for me, and, you know, I don't want to get into Labor, Liberal, Greens, you know, for me, I don't really care who's in power and delivers the reform for us, um, so long as we're able to get the reform across. Yeah. Um, but I just think it is just really poor policy decision um, processes within the Greens. So, if if we take, for example, the Australian Labor Party um, didn't come out in support of the Uluru Statement originally, um, they took their time, they did consultation, there was a lot of lobbying from, you know, the many, many people that are involved in the literary process. Um, it went through a vote on the floor of the National Policy um, Conference before the last federal election, and it gained support and became part of the Australian Labor Party's formal policy um, commitments to the, you know, running into the 2019 federal election. So when we're talking about, you know, how policies and policy decisions are made within parties, um, you know, the Greens... You know, a minority party that they could very well end up in a position where they hold, you know, the balance of power again, or they're impacting and doing deals on significant policies. And for me it highlighted just a concern with how these kind of decisions and internal processes for the Greens play out. And you know, that has to do with, like I said, um, previous Senator Seward, who had carriage of this portfolio, had to take no time, she'd sit on the joint Select committee. Um she she knew these reforms, you know, intimately. she offered the support. There was an actual process of consultation and development of these decisions before they were made, it seems, you know, to me, reading from the outside and and seeing what everyone else has seen, um, off the recommendation of one um, Indigenous politician and seemingly, you know, off the cuff in a radio announcement rather than through a formal policy, you know, process or decision. So, no accountability to the membership of the Greens themselves. And then also a kind of overarching problem for me in that the way the decision was made is the disrespect, and I think um kind of institutionalised racism that displays towards the order received from the hard process, all of the voices that are involved in that, and the elevation of um, Senator Thorpe's voice through the Greens policy platform over um, the rest of the Indigenous community. Or you know, saying not saying everyone supports Thorpe. Really, we're all aware of the different issues that there are out there, um, but this process that was a deliberately-led you know, dialogue process, First Nations led, that went through all these issues and came out for very good, specific reasons, you know, with this sequence reform that was voice treating through. Um, yeah, so it's left a lot of us scratching our heads and very disappointed in the Greens and the way that they've gone about making this decision.
0: And one of the other issues that you raised throughout the um, evening, even though you're on leave, um, was... That um, you had an issue with, uh, you know, the the sequencing of getting a, um, a a treaty or a voice. So the sequencing, in as, espi- as um, espoused in the Uluru statement, is um, voice then treaty and then uh, a truth commission. You know, a macarata of of um, yeah. some sort. Yeah. What um, uh, Lydia and the Greens now. Seem to be espousing is a different sequencing of that, and that's a, a Makarata Commission or a truth-telling process first, then a treaty, and then a voice in that order. Um, what are your issues with with that approach? Yeah,
1: so there's there's a couple of things. Um, I'll try and you know walk through them kind of in order or best order that I understand. Sure. And um, the first one would be to say that you know whilst I recognise that not everyone in the community supports you we're saying from the heart. It is a legitimate, you know, document and process that was produced through a deliberative dialogue process that was First Nations led that went across the country, um, that Senator Thorpe herself participated in in a regional dialogue in Melbourne and also in the national convention um that included dissenting voices from within our own community and produced this consensus position which is a First Nations voice part enshrined in the constitution and the Makarata Commission to implement a process of agreement-making and truth-telling sort of treaty and truth. So, treaty absolutely is a part of the Uluru from the Heart, um, but importantly, it's, it's part of that second um, set of processes or sequence. And the reason for that, you know, there's multiple reasons, um, and all of them have to do with, you know, the political and legal reality that we face in this country, that people um, such as Senator Thorpe and, um, you know, even... Um, Palawa Man, Michael, um, Michael Mantle, um, refused to recognise or accept with regards to whether or not a treaty can be successful. So we're not in the position of first contact where you know treaties are a lot more um, simplified or they deal with those original foundational issues at the time when they happen. We're 250 years into the relationship. It's much more complicated. Things have developed differently in different ways compared to other places where treaties work. Um, and also, that means the Constitution is a paramount law in Australia. So, whatever we do, whether it's we negotiate a treaty, whether we have you know rights that are um, instigated in the Australian state, all of those fall under the power and authority from the Commonwealth perspective of the Australian Constitution. So, there's that kind of you know legal technical issue with the sequence and why those sequence issues you know are very important. It's about achieving changes to that power and authority through Mm -hmm. the structural reform and having the voices there to actually be able to negotiate. Then the kind of bigger issue, which I think, you know, kind of, you know, they're they're related to one another definitely, but something that, you know, faces our community every day is we are so disempowered. Um, You know, it would virtually be impossible for us to negotiate a meaningful treaty or agreements with Commonwealth government without having this representative mechanism that is there as a permanent institution, that outlives Senator thought, that outlives, you know, Minister Ken Wyatt, that outlives different political parties, that can actually empower us through the resources and through the knowledge, all of those things that we need to actually achieve um, a meaningful treaty and truth-telling into the future. We've had truth-telling in this country before. We've had the stolen, um, you know, the Bringing Them Home report. Mm-hmm. We've had the Royal Commission into the Deaths in Custody. Kevin Rudd said, sorry. Um, you know, they all become can-kicking exercises without having these kind of permanent institutions and structural reforms in place to actually give these things meaning and to give them teeth, Um, we risk, you know, spending decades negotiating a treaty that could just be ripped up by the next government because they've got the power to do that under the constitution, or that could just remain... On the shelf with all of the other documents that the government's accepted from our community and made promises. Yeah, you know, how how many more promises does our community, um, you know need to accept and kind of take on good faith and then be um, kicked down the road again? Um, you know, if you look at the matter of treaty, we've been promised multiple times, nothing's come through, and then even if you look at. You know, jurisdiction in Australia, that's probably the most advanced on this at the moment, the Victorian community. Mm. Um, the first thing they did, most importantly, was establish a representative body to be able to empower themselves to be able to start the next process of the negotiation. And now I understand you know, there's some political issues about how that's going or how that was established and everything else, but Ultimately, at the, end, you know, at the end of the day or the beginning of the day, there was just the absolute need for that structural change and that empowerment of our voices first to be able to begin this negotiation going forward. And for me, um, you know, now that Senator Thorpe does have her position, she's taken up a, um, her voice in Parliament that she unfortunately is attempting to refuse to all other Indigenous people. Um, serious questions need to be asked of, of her position, of the Greens' position, of others that put up you know, um, this idea of changing the sequence or putting treaty first and ask them and, you know, hold them to account and responsible for how they're going to achieve those things and do all those things in the life of all those points that I've just mentioned. Treaty absolutely is, and I want to, you know, make this clear, like important to our community. We all know that it's, you know, it's something that must be done and must happen. It's just not the reality of, you know, the political and legal reality that we face that it can happen first and everything else is going to fall in line afterwards.
0: And We're speaking with uh, Eddie Sinnott, who is – well, he's an academic and a lawyer and a researcher at uh, Griffith University, and he's also mad for the Uluru Statement. Um, now, uh, I guess the, the big thing, Eddie, that, that people seem to uh, – Um, forget about, and you mentioned it just before, is that there needs to be, that actually needs to be some sort of mechanism to get to a point where treaty negotiation actually occurs. And my understanding is that the Uluru Statement was always going to provide that mechanism through the voice, yeah?
1: Absolutely. That's what the Makarata Commission is for. Um, You know, the voice is that kind of the constitutional hawkers, Professor Davis and many other constitutional scholars explain it. It's it gives us that power and that mechanism, that foot in the door to establish that structural reform. And then the Makarata Commission is, you know, the body, the meat on the bones that would do the work of, you know, empowering and resourcing our people to be able to enter into those agreements and um, the truth-telling process. Okay, it well, you know, was mentioned of the dialogues, and it's, you know, it's absolutely a central part of the Uluru stone from
0: the heart. Um, now, before I let you go, if, um, you know, if, if the greens were open to having a, of a conversation with uh, regarding the, their policy position who, who would they actually talk to you know and of all you um you know ep, you know preeminent yeah. um, uh, voices for the voice what would be the, the the mechanism there who would who would they actually negotiate with or speak to about the statement so since the
1: um, Uluru Statement was issued to the Australian people. There's a group called the Uluru Dialogue that's continued um, the work of, of the Uluru Dialogue. And the, um, it was originally the working group after the Statement was issued but that's made up of representatives from all of those dialogues. It's got those um experts that um, you, know, you mentioned before, Arnie Pat Anderson, um, Professor Megan Davis. Arnie Pat is a co-chair, as is Roy RC. Um, yeah, so there's that group that is kind of responsible um, for for the Uluru Statement and for the Uluru Dialogue perspective. But, mm-hmm. you know, beyond that, they, they should have or, well, you know, they can easily have access to constitutional law experts, experts in the field of, you know, Indigenous governments, relationships, um, you know, across the nation. There's been multiple reports that have been done over the last 10 years And that kind of came to a bipartisan position in the Joint Select Committee in 2018, which, you know, Senator Seewa and and the Greens themselves um, supported the position of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. So, the work is absolutely being done there. The um, the ability to be able to speak to people and to reach out and to consult, and my understanding is... um, you know, a lot of those consultations are already happening, all those conversations, you know, people are already reaching out or have been reaching out behind the scene as well, um, which is another reason why this this kind of decision and, and when it happened um, was a bit disconcerting.
0: Okay, well, we'll look on with uh, with interest. Um, I was going to Half thinking of trying to get Leah on um, the show tonight as well, but um, I'm guessing she's had a pretty pretty busy day. I'm sure she's- first days, first days as senator
1: yeah, I'm sure she's on. Um- <laughs> Very busy, probably celebrating. Um, you know, what is an important day as
0: well. Yeah, yeah, we'll try and get her on um, um, some point in the not too distant future. But Eddie, thank you so much for your time and your perspective and, and your expertise. Um, give uh, my and my um, the Triple R audiences uh, kind uh, um, uh, regards to Arthur, and um, I hope everything continues to go well for you and your family. Will do. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, on to our uh, second guest. Now, to call him an overachiever wouldn't be right because I actually think he is limitless. (laughs) Uh, Corey Tutt is a Gallimore. Sorry, Corey Tud is a Kalamari man who founded Deadly Science, a program which provides remote schools across Australia with scientific resources and connects young Indigenous people with mentors to encourage their participation in STEM subjects. Indigenous Australians are the world's first scientists, yet they are significantly underrepresented in all areas of STEM. Deadly Science aims to change this. Uh, Corey is also Young Australian of the Year in New South Wales 2020 and CSIRO Indigenous STEM Champion 2019 and 2020, and he's been nominated for this year's Eureka Prize for um, STEM Inclusion. The Eureka Prize, if you don't know, rewards excellence in the fields of research and innovation, leadership, science engagement, and school science, and the very excellent Corey is on the line now. Corey, welcome to the mission. Yeah,
2: everyone. everyone. Um, thank you for having me.
0: No sweat. Um, Congratulations uh, on on the nomination and thank you for all the work that you do. Let's start off with uh, with, with your baby, Deadly Science. Where where did the idea for Deadly Science actually originate?
2: Well, um, it's it's funny that you ask that. So I, I started my career off as a zookeeper and I think, you know, my sort of experience of sharing knowledge has probably started at a really young age um, and developed into my career when um, obviously when you're a zookeeper you're telling people about the wonderful and amazing animals you look after and um, you know I worked down at Shoahe Zoo and I think um, you know I was always letting the mob down there into the zoo and uh, don't tell the owner that but um, I'm
0: on on the phone directly um, after this conversation Corey I'm sorry
2: yeah yeah you might as well be (laughs) Um, you know, and it was, you know, it's that kind of sharing that, you know, I think deadly science has always been a part of my life, but it's, um, it really sort of took off in um, probably mid to late 2017 when I was working at the University of Sydney as an animal technician working in the labs there. And um, I guess I just, you know, I there's just so few of us in STEM and it never really made sense to me because... Yeah. You know, our people were the first scientists. You know, we were the first chemists. We were the first astronomers. Um, you know, if, if you're a white fellow and you're a gamut fellow and you get lost in the bush, the first people they go and get to find you are the black fellas. Yeah. You know, the first forensic scientists. <laughs> um, and, you know, this is this is stuff that is part of our history. Um, and we don't call it science. We call it care and for country It's every part of everyday life. And, you know, it made no sense to me that... Um, We're pushing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids towards art and sport, and don't get me wrong, they're great things, Yeah, Um, but we come from the generation of first scientists.
0: That's the thing that always sort of fascinated me, Corey, is that uh, Aboriginal people... Excelled in so many fields, you know. I was just speaking to a, a lawyer, an academic. Then, um, the arts, as you mentioned, sport, of course, but um, you know, so many different fields. But it, for some bizarre reason, STEM seems to have lagged behind all of that. What if? What could, would you pinpoint as the reason for that lag?
2: Um, probably a generation of lies. Um, you know, for a long time, we we're taught that, um, and you know, coming, you know, my. My pops mob from um, up near Walgett way, and I grew up with an Aboriginal grandfather. And you know he couldn't read or write. And then when we'd go to school, you know you you'd hear you'd hear the teachers telling you about Aboriginal people and saying that they're you know nomadic and you know they were pretty much saved by white people. Even if you think that's a lie, when you're a young kid, it's the you know it it takes away strength from within. Um, And it's it's generations of that, Um, you know, generations of the only people we celebrate are sports heroes or artists. Um, When, you know, we've got David Yuripon, who's probably, you know, he's probably one of the greatest inventors in Australian history, and he was mobbed, you know.
0: Tell tell us us about him.
2: So I think, well, he's just incredible. I mean, he's on the $50 note. So, and, you know, a lot of, we're, we're lucky today that a lot of kids, are Getting to learn about David Europon. but he had he had plans for a helicopter, rotor blades. He was just an incredible, you know, inventor. And I think that you know it's it's a real tragedy that he wasn't you know more celebrated more um, throughout his life. But it's um you know it's not just David Europon, It's um you know a generation of um you know in, Indigenous scientists and you know, that have created things. Like, I mean, you can look at um, Europon's invention, the shearing piece, which is just incredible. You know, that changed the way that we sheared sheep in Australia. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that, and that you know, that was down to the mop, you know? Um, you know. And then we can look at the recent stuff with the bushfires and how we practiced yeah. cool burning. And, you know, we looked after the country so it didn't burn to a crisp. But then if you look at the other stuff, like astronomy, predicting the weather, there's stuff that, you know, that's the stuff that gets a lot of the attention, but it's the little stuff um, from, you know, that people don't notice, like, um, you know, creating the, the thermoplastics to make our uh, boats waterproof. Um, you know, that's that incredible.
0: Yeah, it's and it's 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 a story that I think still hasn't been properly told. I don't think it's part of the proper sort of lexicon at at the moment. Uh, let's talk about uh, the nuts and bolts of what uh, Deadly Science does. So I read on your website that. Um, uh, the most recent information is that you've shipped over 14,000 books, 500 telescopes and chemistry sets, plus the resources to over to plus other resources to over 112 schools with more to come. Um, tell us about the day to day nuts and bolts of, of what you do and trying to get indigenous kids in into STEM. Well, it, um, you
2: know, it, it all starts with something really simple and it's, it, you can't be what you can't see. And that's a really yep. cliche and you But it's true, isn't it? so true. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. And, um, you know, with me, I, like, I don't, I don't beat around the bush. I'm not perfect, but, you know, I, I've been able to hold a career with STEM. And, you know, I, yeah, I just, I try and share my stories, but I don't try and tell people what to do. And I yeah. try and listen. Um. And, you know, I listen to the schools, I listen to the communities and, you know, we talk about what we can do. And, like, just today, um, you know, I work with a lot of special needs schools as well and, um, you know, I was talking to the NJD Foundation and, you know, I said to them, hey, like, how do we get young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disabilities to see the stars? You know, and I, and I say to them, hey, well, you know, we can get one of those projective things that projects the solar system onto the roof and that's... That's one way we could do it. But then, you know, it's, it's about working together to find solutions. Yeah. Um, and it's this is what deadly science is. It's not as simple as sending books out to remote communities. It's a real relationship. It's a relationship, a working relationship to, to fix a problem that is systemic, that, you know, and, and the gap isn't in knowledges, it's in resources. Mm. Um, these kids are really bright. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander the kids are incredibly bright. Their real world knowledge and application of science is they've got a knack for it because they come from a generation of scientists.
0: Yeah, that's um, right. And
2: I and think yeah, so we, we
0: and I think I think you know in, uh, Indigenous kids in remote communities, um, in particular, are are extremely tactile, and 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 being that tactile actually I think increases your, your your curiosity of the world and and the way things have come come to be. So you know, having a, a an organisation like Deadly Science coming along, and not only providing the resources, but you also provide mentoring support, and you build those relationships to make sure that those resources are actually utilised. Um, not only at all, but when they are utilised, they're utilised the, the correct way.
2: Yeah, definitely. There's no point sending a telescope if the the mob don't know how to use it. Yeah, if
0: you're looking down the um, end, you know. And
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I I can tell you a really good story about um, you know some of the impacts of deadly science, and you know I've been on this journey, and this is still isn't my full time job. You know, I do this on a, a part time basis because I really care about it. And, you know, it's it's moments like um, Trey that in WA is a young kid and he got kicked off the Quanta footy team. Um, He was performing academically, wasn't performing, and he, you know, was getting in a bit of trouble and all he needed was just someone to invest in him. And we, we practiced reading every day and he got really good at reading. And now, you know, he's got a 76% on his, um, you know, chemistry and bio- biological exam, and then he's now gone from an E to a to an A um, in the space of a year. And, you know, I'm not going to take credit for that because that's all Trey. You know, that's, that's completely 100% him. But all he needed was just someone to just invest the time into him and not, not just treat him like you know, oh, here's another kid that's just going to drop out of school and be a troublemaker. Sometimes all these kids need is just someone to look up to and chat to and yarn to. And, um, you know, I was happy to be that person. But I think we just need to – we need to give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids um, a chance. Um, And, you know, a lot of the times these kids are written off, you know, pretty much from birth because we have Mm. this – um, Non-Indigenous people have these preconceptions of Aboriginal kids because the only images they see of Aboriginal kids are negatives. Um, so if we change the the narrative and we show them some of the good stories and community, then it's going to do one or two things. It's going to they're going to do more. They're going to care more, um, or they're going to be frightened of it. And you know, being frightened of it is probably a good thing because they should be frightened of it because these kids are incredibly talented.
0: Yeah, and you know the, the pressure that um, I think anyone that achieves in any field, the pressure that you place on yourself is the greatest pressure of all. And so, be able be able to um, to relieve some of that pressure by speaking to people like yourself about what they're um, trying to achieve is um, just so important. Now, you've been nominated for the uh, Eureka Prize for um, STEM inclusion. How do you feel about that? Oh,
2: look, I was a bit teary about it, but yeah, good um, on you. You know, for me. It's a it's a terrific honour, but it doesn't change a thing for me. Yeah, um, in the sense of you know I'm still, the sun's still going to come up tomorrow, and I've still got a job to do. And my job yep. is to empower kids in this country to believe what what they can see. And um, if I can turn the light on and let them see what potential they have, then I'm you know I'm doing my job. And um, you know these things will come and go. And if I was to win, then that's a fantastic thing, and that's another you know it's another sort of favor in my cap that I can. Sort of say to these kids it's what you can achieve with hard work and dedication um, and you know I like I said I'm not perfect I'm not special um, and if I can show them the way then that, that is a really good use for that award
0: yeah absolutely just another um uh, a light that shines on, on, on a really important issue. And we need champions like yourself to, to be able to get that spotlight and do something with it. So um, thank you for your, for your work. Now, if people want to actually donate to Deadly Science, they can just go to deadlyscience.icu. Um, and all the, yep. all the money raised goes to these wonderful projects and these resources. Isn't that right, Corey?
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we've set up a charity now. Unfortunately, we don't have tax deductibility yet. We've got to change the law. Yep, um, and we need MPs support for that. I've written to a number of MPs, but still no word yet. But we'll get um, we'll get on to them. But um, okay, well, let's let's know, keep you, in
0: touch with that the, with that with that um, campaign because um, that just seems a little bit ridiculous to me.
2: Yeah, well, it, it, you know, whatever whatever I have to do it's still going to work. So um, the donations go towards um, science resources for these remote schools, and um, you know it's... Um, I know everyone's doing it a bit tough with COVID at the moment, and um, you know any greatly appreciated, and your support's greatly appreciated because um, we're one mob, we're one community, and um, I hope that you know everyone out there is doing it safe, and um, you know we can you can if you can get some inspiration from Deadly Science's work, then that is a that's a really great thing.
0: Well, the Triple R audience, Corey, you'll be pleased to know, is a very generous and deadly audience, as are you, brother. Thank you so much for your time. There was nothing to be nervous about. I told you about that at the start. So um, you did fantastically well. So thank you so much for your time and for your work.
2: Thanks for having me, brother. Um, it's Yeah, it's just been um, incredible. And um, thanks for sharing the work of Deadly Science. And um, I hope everyone out there listening is staying safe and um, you know, not doing it too tough and But
0: hang in there. The vast majority of us are doing the right thing, Corey, so we'll get through the other end of this um, sooner rather than later. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.